Welcome to another episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast, where we discuss why legal history matters. I'm Aisha Williams, former New York City school leader of an HSNYC partner school and facilitator for today's podcast. Today is May 27, 2020, and we will be speaking with Jahan Sinai Worthy about the Society's Harlem Law Program, which began as a Saturday enrichment program for students in Harlem. In addition to being the Judith S.K. Fellow at the Harlem Law Program, she is currently Assistant Professor in American Social Sciences at Bard High School Early College in Newark, New Jersey. Jahan and I will be discussing the successes and challenges of the Harlem Law Program, as well as the heart of it all, the students. So thank you for joining us today, Jahan. Could you start by telling us what drew you to the Historical Society of the New York Courts and the Harlem Law Program in particular? So first, thank you so much for having me today. Um, so I learned about the Harlem Law Program through Dr. John Weinstein, uh, the Dean of Bard Early Colleges. And what he did was he shared with me information about the makings of a Saturday program, which would be composed of uh, students Bard Early Colleges worked with at a previous program at Harlem Children's Zone that is no longer. And in order to continue building a relationship with those students, uh, they would be the participants in this new program uh, with the Historical Society of the New York Courts. Uh, there would be two modules offered to these high school juniors and seniors, and students would earn two credits per module. And that, it just really excited me so much. And, and that's why I wanted to be a part of the program. I had heard about the Historical Society of the New York Courts, um, had always wanted to take part in their professional development opportunities for teachers that they have throughout the year. So if you're listening to this and you haven't been able to check out professional development opportunities, um, you should really go to their website and take a look because they, they are really, really phenomenal. In addition to those professional development opportunities, they have this a plethora of resources provided on the website and it's just astounding. Um, and the work that they do amazes me. John told me that this program would be led by program manager, Lagai Franklin, with whom I had the pleasure of working with at another program, the Fellowship Initiative in Manhattan. Um, and I, I thought it was admirable that, that John and Lagaya wanted to stay in touch with students from Harlem Children's Zone. And it, it really did show, you know, the sort of relationships that Bard Early Colleges builds with their students. And I, I felt so honored to be given the opportunity to be a fellow. Um, I knew that with the number of resources provided by the Historical Society of the New York Courts, you know, the strong leadership of, of John and Lagaya, the emphasis on building lasting relationships with students, I knew that with all of that, this program would be beautiful. And of course, when I, I met Allison, Mora, and Marilyn Marcus of the Historical Society of the New York Courts, it further solidified that for me. We make a, a really good team. Oh, that's really interesting. And can you tell me a little bit more about what do you think uh, makes this program particularly appealing to students and teachers, um, not only the program in and of itself, but also just learning about New York State law? The program is geared toward um, high school juniors and seniors, and they earn two college credits. So it puts them ahead um, of any other student. Um, and also module one, you know, at the heart of module one is New York's rich legal history. And unfortunately, uh, we don't always teach that in schools. Um, so we, we began with reading Island at the Center of the World by Russell Shorto, um, which is an intriguing look at New York, which at that time was New York City, parts of Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, um, and then moved to the takeover of New York by the English in the mid-17th century, American Rev, 
ratification of the New York State Constitution, which is always interesting to me because I went to, to high school in Kingston, New York, which was the first uh, capital of New York. Um, United States Constitution, Civil War and Reconstruction in New York. So I, I think that when students learn all of those things um, about the place where they were, uh, grew up and were raised, um, they get really interested. Mm. Well, you talked about modules, um, I think in reference to discussing the content of the program. And so can you say a little bit more about how the content is organized and how easy it would be for teachers to perhaps navigate through it? This program is divided into two modules. Like I said before, module one is more of the dense legal history of New York, where we're talking about um, New York under Dutch rule, English rule, American Rev, the Constitution of New York State, etc. Module two is more of a look at specific uh, laws and legislature of New York State, but a bit more interesting to the students. So we've got the dense legal history and then we've got like, we're talking about um, abortion and, and rights of women in the second module. We're talking about uh, LGBTQ rights in the second module. We're talking about the politics of hair with that, um, the revision of the human rights law in, in New York City, right? So. You know, it's a bit dense in the first part and then a, a bit looser and creative and more fun in the second. But both modules, uh, students are, are studying on their own. Um, there's a bit of independent study weaved throughout both modules where students work together in groups. They choose a social justice issue that's important to them. And it's their job to look at New York State laws and legislature as it pertains to that social justice issue. And, and they present in both of those modules. Yes, I can definitely hear the threads of social justice woven within those concepts. And so that sounds like it would be something really interesting to students. And as a former New York uh, City school leader myself that partnered with uh, the HSNYC, I could see the benefits of the research, the content, the programming to my students um, where I happened to lead, which was an all-male school. Um, our students were able to really understand the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, New York State laws, but do so in their own terms, and then really make sense of the way that our country was created and connect to them today. So like, you know, being able to realize those visuals. So what do you think are some of the contributions that your students might see, perhaps um, in thinking about the court system in itself, New York state laws, um, and even perhaps some aspirational career um, thoughts? Definitely, as you said, it, it's increasingly important that students understand the United States Constitution, right? In, in my mind, as a history teacher, I want them to think about the decisions that, you know, our founders made and what decisions our founders kind of left up to future generations to figure out on their own. And I, and I think that it's really important that students, along um, with that, that legal history uh, portion of it, that they know what they can do in their everyday lives to kind of better... Um, their, their circumstances, you know, for themselves, for others, and, and to advocate for, for their own communities. And that's something that this program can help students do. And so I, I see this as a way uh, of helping students know how to participate in, in United States government and, and as well as become future lawyers and, and judges. I know there are a few students in the program who had those aspirations as well of, of going to law school um, and making those contributions to, to society. 
Yeah, I definitely saw um, our students starting to think that and see, you know, ways in which they could empower themselves and their community by learning some of this material. And through our partnership with the Historical Society of the New York Courts, we were also able to have access to the New York City court system for students to visit the district attorney's office, um, an actual courtroom and judges quarters, um, so that they could have direct access and be able to see the many facets of law aside from even some of the things that I think we all happen to see on television, they really got sort of a behind the scenes look at, you know, what makes up careers um, that are sort of non-traditional to what they happen to know. Jahan, when you think of uh, that, what advantages did you see um, with the program with your students as far as being able to sort of see a behind the scenes scope of law and of itself? and really not just looking at court cases, but also sort of broadening their thinking in this area. Right, so just like you said, uh, there's a plethora of online resources, the website, the historical documents, the court cases, biographies, all available on the Historical Society of the New York Courts um, websites. But then there's that, that kind of deeper level that you talked about, the access to the lawyers, the judges, the courthouses, and people in places that, you know, we wouldn't have had access to without this partnership. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we didn't get to we didn't get to all of that that we aspired to. But that is definitely one of the benefits and advantages of working with the historical society of the New York courts. Now it sounds as though that there were so many benefits to the program. Let's talk about some of the challenges. I think one of them was being that some students found it difficult to get to the community center um, and commit to the time on Saturdays with the program that you worked with in particular. Can you say more about that and um, talk about what did you do in order to remedy that? Yeah, so my, my program manager, Lagaya Franklin, did such a beautiful job with outreach. She made sure that there was an open, open flow of communication uh, between students, families, schools, and the program. And I am so thankful for all of the work that she's done. Um, what Lagaya found when she was communicating with students and families and schools um, was that students were oftentimes burdened um, with responsibilities at home, uh, where their parents relied on them for support, and they were also overwhelmed with the college admissions process. In, in order to accommodate students who were unable to make it to the program on Saturdays, we began to move the program online. So even before school closure and being quarantined, we had already begun the process of a blended in-person online program. Yeah, that's something that now a lot of students and parents are also having to experience is remote learning. Um, you know, I, just if you don't mind, Jahan, can you say a little bit more about what some of the facets were of the online learning, some things that you made sure that students were able to do and access, um, even in its most general sense, so that they had still had a good education in this program and understood some of its core concepts? In the early stages of, of being quarantined, um, we learned that students were becoming overwhelmed with the amount of work being assigned at their, their home institutions, so the schools that they go to um, normally Monday through Friday. We are all as educators trying to figure out, you know, how much we can ask students to do in their own homes. and. Um, especially in the beginning stages, we weren't all successful. So that was one of the things that we noticed when we began module two. So module two began at the, right at the beginning of 
when the coronavirus was coming, you know, was in the United States and, and kind of um, moving, moving through New York City. And so one, it was taking a look at the amount of coursework I was assigning. Um, and then also just making sure that in-class activities were those that involved in um, talking with one another. Because I think that when you move online, sometimes that, that student voice can be lost. And that's, that's something that I wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. Um, so incorporating ways that where students could voice their opinions and learn the material and kind of reeling back on, on some of the coursework, but not all because students are earning college credit, like real college credit, which means they have to do some, some, some work. Unfortunately, because students were burdened with the amount of work that they had to do from their homeschools, we had to postpone module two. Um, hopefully it will occur in the summer. So those were some of the things that we did in order to, to make sure that, that students were feeling most importantly, like taken care of during this time. Yeah, that care is really important. And you sound like such a great teacher, Jahan. So I know all the students feel particularly excited by having you be their teacher. Um, and, you know, now that we have a better understanding of the HSNYC and the Harlem Law Program, um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more of the heart of the program, which are the students. And generally speaking, um, if you could give us sort of a personal look into um, what a student or a story that you can share really took away from the program. Working with these students has been like truly a rewarding experience. Um, there's, you know, this moment that really stands out to me the most. Um, so as I said before, module one ends with students kind of presenting a social justice issue that is really close to their hearts. And as an educator, it's really important for me to always give students the opportunity to choose topics that they enjoy learning about because the content that maybe I've decided for them to learn may not be what they particularly want to learn all the time. So it gives them the ability to, to, to dive right in and be excited about diving right into something that they, that they want. So I, I had a group um, who wanted to study um, police brutality in New York City. And in their presentation, they were talking about, you know, Fifth Amendment right to due process of law and freedom from self-incrimination. They were talking about the Sixth Amendment rights of accused persons and the Seventh Amendment freedom from excessive bail and, and you know, all of that. So them using that language to describe um, what has happened to uh, people of color in, in New York City and throughout the country was, was really beautiful to see. And, and lastly, during the Q&A, there's this portion uh, where we talked about the importance of terminology. Do we call it police brutality or do we say the use of excessive force? You know, what do we gain or what do we lose from using either terminology, right? What importance does language have on the ways in which we describe events, the ways in which we create and uphold laws and the ways in which we kind of respond to those events and laws as, as everyday people? And to just see them engage with those watching the presentation on those, those things was just, you know, it was just a, a very rewarding experience for, for me um, as their teacher. Mm. This, I mean, in this day and age, the content that students are learning with this program seems particularly relevant. I, you know, I believe that myself or the students that I certainly taught. And I think it definitely makes social justice um, more accessible and arm reaching for students because it's not just, you know, telling students that, you know, choose an issue from which you feel particularly passionate about, um, but instead, 
you know, let's learn about that issue. Let's really dive into primary and secondary sources so that you have, you know, some facts, some information um, to then help to fuel um, some of your interests in particular areas of social justice. It's just one of the things that I really love about the teachings and about the program as well. But, you know, before we conclude our talk, um, when we're thinking about the pandemic and sort of our new normals that we have and that we're still creating in the world of education, you know, how do you see the future of teaching um, in reference to what's going on now? This is such, you know, a huge question. And I've been thinking about this a lot, like even uh, long before the pandemic. And, you know, it's really interesting because I think that the pandemic has forced us to finally think about education in ways we should have probably thought about education long before it and without it ever having happened, right? For example, it, it's taught us to reevaluate the use of standardized testing uh, to evaluate students and teachers and to think about other ways in which we can assess student growth. You know, I, I worked at a consortium school for four years before uh, coming back to teach for Bard High School early college and this program. And so I'm consortium schools, you know that performance-based assessment tasks are at the heart of the institution. And so I'm, I'm really happy to, to realize, to see that maybe now project-based assessments uh, will be seen as a better way to assess students because of the pandemic, we no longer have standardized testing. Um, additionally, I, I think we're, we're finally coming to terms with the reality that not every student has access to internet, computers, and other forms of technology. I know that um, my school in particular, teachers and, and the nurse at, at BSEC Newark and, and I and other teachers, we, were, we had to get student laptops. We had to make sure that we were providing each student with an equal opportunity to education. Also, I think we are now forced to think about student access to food and mental health services. Without adequate nutrition and mental health services, how can we expect students to perform well outside of school, which is our reality? Now, uh, we are starting to think about ways to accommodate that. And I mean, it shouldn't have taken a pandemic to start for us to start thinking about those things. And, and you know, I hope in the future when this is all, you know, over, that we can continue to think about ways to level the playing field for underserved students. But aside from that, I do, I really see the future of teaching as being a blended online in-person hybrid. Uh, really nothing beats face-to-face -face interactions with students. Um, nothing will ever come close to that. Like I come from a Bardian background being, you know, a student of Bard College, now a teacher at Bard Early Colleges, um, where we really emphasize class discussions and building relationships with students through those discussions. And I fear that uh, moving completely online will diminish student voice in the classroom. Of course, there's things that teachers can do to mediate that, but the, the truth of the matter is that it's far better to see student faces and to engage with them when they're right in front of you. Um, on the other hand, teaching online allows schools and programs and people to reach students across the state, the country, the world, right? So it really has this ability to connect us all. And of course, when you have students who are unable to make it to class every now and then, as we found with our students at, during module one of the Harlem Law Program, due to their responsibilities at home or them trying to, to get into a good college, um, you know, we, you know that the hybrid would really help with that. 
Wow, those are powerful words from a powerful teacher for sure. <laughs> Jahan, some of your thoughts may even serve as a foundation for a new podcast for sure. I bet there's a lot of educators <laughs> uh, and parents that have some ideas about what this distance learning may do uh, and what we may need to take and consider into the future. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, uh, you know, Jihan, thank you so much for just your insights and sharing your experiences. Um, I really appreciate having a moment to just touch base with you and hear those thoughts. Well, thank you so much for having me, Aisha. And also, we want to thank the Historical Society of the New York Courts and our listeners for participating in our podcast today. Listeners can visit the Society's rich archive of educational materials on its website, history.nycourts.gov. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast. Learn more about our educational programs, find lesson plans, and other curricular material and see how the society can work with your class or school on the teach and learn section of our website at history.nycourts.gov. That's history.nycourts.gov.